Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I just have a few short messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow and help me get on bigger and better guests. Also, don't forget you can pre-order my book, To the Moon, The GameStop Saga, right now by following the links in the description below. We've also got a few quick sponsors for the show today. Cryptocurrencies are all the rage these days. Over 100 million people now own cryptocurrency. Some for the memes, some for the long-term value, and some for the underlying technology. But there hasn't been a coin or token that has emerged yet that truly replaces cash or currency. This is where Dash comes in. Dash is digital cash, a user-focused cryptocurrency which you can spend anywhere, anytime, and any amount for fees less than one cent. With hashtag Dash Direct, people can spend their Dash at over 155,000 major US retailers and get a discount and money back into their Dash wallet. No banks, no fiat, just pure crypto with an average saving of 5%. Anyone can participate in the network and Dash is widely available for purchase around the world. The ingenious masternode network means sending any sum of money around the world is as simple as tapping your phone at your local grocery store. So you can say goodbye to slow transactions, complex international account numbers, and high transaction fees. Dash gives you the freedom to move your money any way you want. Grab a coffee, split a check, or pay your phone bill. Dash moves money anywhere to anyone instantly for less than a cent. Are you bored of TV? Do you like drugs but can't afford them? Are you still paying alimony? Well, maybe it's time to read How to See a Man About a Dog, The Collected Writings. Get your dose of surreal prose and poetry with this dark comedy collection. How to See a Man About a Dog is a collection of experimental short stories, powerful poems, and pulp fiction prose that will take you on a wild, hilarious, and heartbreaking journey. Surrealist short stories, Memoiristic poems and haunting jokes guide you through the wild imagination of emerging writer Samuel Knox. For the reader looking for a wholly original and experimental mixed-media approach to stories, How to See a Man About a Dog is a much-needed fever dream tour de force. How to See a Man About a Dog is a kaleidoscope collage made of equal parts delight and despair. Internationally selling author Samuel Knox blends sci-fi, horror, fantasy and non-fiction into a single, enrapturing vision of what it means to be human in the modern age. You'll find the ebook on Kindle Unlimited and print copies at Amazon, the Book Depository, Waterstones, and most major retailers. Check out How to See a Man About a Dog now and take a journey through the human experience. With Christmas coming up, we all need some inspiration for presents. And it can be a really tough question, especially for the women in your lives. That's wives, girlfriends, mums, and sisters. Well, I might just have the answer for you. Unidragon wooden puzzles solve this problem. It might just be the coolest puzzle that you'll ever do. Unidragon puzzles are stunning pieces of artwork with vivid and vibrant colors. They do a range of wolves, tigers, and owls that look like cutouts from mosaics and stained glass windows, as well as traditional portraits of Chiang Mai, the Sagrada Familia, and the New York Sunrise. These aren't just beautiful pieces of artwork in themselves. Each piece of the puzzle is shaped like a whole host of animals. That's butterflies, lizards, whales, and more. 
So you could theoretically have a lion's head made up of everything it would eat for breakfast. The best part is that listeners of Chatter will get a 10% discount by using the code CHATTER. That's C-H-A-T-T-E-R. There are different packs for children and adults, and each puzzle is packed with a premium wooden gift box. New puzzles are released every month, so keep an eye on the website for new designs coming out all the time. Get a fun puzzle, a colourful and unique piece of artwork, and a great present all in one. Go to unidragon.com or .eu or follow the link in the description below. And don't forget to use your discount code CHATTER for 10% off your puzzle. That's Unidragon. Puzzling artwork and a truly unique gift. Links for everything will be in the description below. So check them out and then please enjoy the podcast. Right. I believe we're live. I hope we're live. Um, <laughs> it happened the other day. I, I started the started the stream, but um, didn't actually click go live. So the first five minutes oh, were gone. Man. That was slightly disappointing. But anyway, hello everyone who's who's already listening. Thanks for for tuning in. Uh, I am here today with Kurt Wukert, I believe is how you pronounce your surname. Yeah, close yeah. enough. Mm. I mean, <laughs> what tends to happen to me is when I see like any word that looks vaguely German, because I, I lived in Austria for for five winters. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to just imagine it as how, like as a German name. So it, when I looked it, at it, I was like Wuckert, and I was like, "That's Wuckert, not it." Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so good, Wuckert, Herr Wuckert. <laughs> so uh, we are here to talk about Bitcoin, about Bitcoin Cash, about the Civil War. Maybe we will get into El Salvador, and I'm sure there's plenty, um, plenty of other things we'll get into, uh, given that there's, sure. there's many, many things going on at the minute. So. Um, before we start, why don't you just um, give people who are listening who maybe don't know who you are um, an idea of your background and and yeah, what you sure. are to this space? Yeah, so I'm uh, my name's Kurt Walker Jr. I'm uh, currently CoinGeek.com's chief Bitcoin historian. Uh, I'm here to right the wrongs of of the Bitcoin civil war, tell the stories that people wish I wouldn't tell, and uh, ultimately get into uh, the real history of Satoshi Nakamoto and Bitcoin. Uh, my story starts in 2012. I was a uh, an entrepreneur. I owned a printing company, and I had somebody offer to pay me in Bitcoin to do about a $50 print job. And uh, I didn't know what the hell it was, but he said, hey, it's like video game money. And I said, you know what? Sure. <laughs> and uh, that got me started down the rabbit hole. Uh, I ran a small mining operation uh, from 2013 to 2015. Uh, learned a whole lot real quick because we were profitable for the first month. And then uh, I came to later discover that um, ASIC mining had happened without my knowledge. And so we were trying to build a GPU farm and that didn't really work. And uh, it was crazy, but learned a lot of good lessons. Um, worked in software dev, um, wallet development, stuff like that. Uh, I also have an IT and secu- uh, cybersecurity background as well. Uh, and I've just been in the Bitcoin space nonstop. In in 2017, I was brought on as a fundamental analyst to help people uh, learn about how to properly secure their Bitcoin. Basically, your basics, your private key stuff, um, basic security procedures and stuff for new investors. This was for a um, an investment education group. And I was brought on as like the Bitcoin fundamentals guy. So I would walk people through, you know, here's all your basics. And then people would ask, you know, history and it turned into me just talking a lot about like well here's what bitcoin used to be like and here's how you know here's here's this guy and that and here's who funds them all and i've kind of turned into like a sort of investigative journalist uh just by kind of 
remembering who people were and how things were back in the day. And I, I'm, I'm a pretty good storyteller. So that has evolved into me. Uh, I was a, an independent Bitcoin casher for, uh, you know, late 2017 and into the 2018 hash war between BCH uh, that created the BSV split. And uh, I was an independent uh, BSV advocate until about one year ago. It was last November uh, that I accepted a job at CoinGeek.com, which is a media uh, reporting and, um, you know, we, we do all kinds of stuff, uh, but it's, it's primarily a media organization in the BSV space. And so now I speak professionally uh, about BSV and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm, I'm still very familiar with what's going on in Ethereum and, and the progressive stuff, you know, Solana, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a wonk for this stuff. So I'm, I'm very comfortable playing with tools and a bunch of ecosystems, but I'm very much a BSV advocate. Okay, that that's a pretty pretty solid intro. It sounds like you got plenty of experience in this field, which is which yeah. is fantastic. Um, so the and yeah, the, you hopefully are going to be able to explain a lot of things to me that I'm I'm not a hundred percent on. But um, just just to begin, um, is Bitcoin money? Is that is that is it money? Is is or is it just like magic internet numbers? It's Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a protocol, first of all. So Bitcoin is like a protocol spec, similar to like what you would call like, you know, MySQL is like a, a is a databasing spec that is used by all kinds of players and things. Um, so Bitcoin, the protocol allows a rule set that creates a network that writes to a database. And so what what can you do with that? Right. And And the answer, in my opinion, is well, whatever you want. If, if the miners will accept it, that you've used Bitcoin properly, right? So um, Bitcoin is money. Bitcoin is cash. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto said Bitcoin, an electronic cash system. And so uh, he very much intended it for it to be a transactional cash. Uh, and people who disagree, I would implore them, read the introduction and sec section one of the white paper, which very clearly talks about internet commerce, like disrupting internet commerce and payments players, uh, which at the time were, you know, PayPal and credit cards. This is 2008. So uh, yes, Bitcoin is money. Bitcoin is cash. Uh, but it's also it, it's anything that the miners will accept. So if you, if you pay them and they say, yep, I'll write that to the blockchain, then by all means, it's valid. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah i mean i guess I, I i've been i've been paid a couple times in in cryptocurrency and then like i'll tell anyone above the age of 35 and they're like well you need to get paid in real money <laughs> <laughs> which is um yeah i find it hilarious because i'm like you do realize this is just basically like any other currency at this point like i can mm -hmm. almost instantaneously if not instantaneously change it for like fiat money if yeah. i was that dumb <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I even argue d data is money in, in certain situations, water is money. You know, if, if I'm in the desert and I'm thirsty, I, I will exchange a lot of things for water. Water becomes my money. It is the thing of value that I need to survive and, and live on to the next day. So money, money is very much situational and it's very much based on opinion. Uh, the U.S. dollar is great money in most of the places in the world, but it's really bad money uh, in others. And, and, and that's entirely it's, it's socioeconomic, it's political, it's a lot of things. But it's much the same way in Bitcoin. If people understood how much value could be created with Bitcoin, uh, I, I think everyone would be clawing over everyone else to get it. Mm, yeah, I guess. It, well, well, <laughs> maybe we'll get to that point. <laughs> well, 
prices are uh, at a nice, beautiful all-time high at the minute, which is great to see. Um, I can't, I, I can't deny that I'm, I'm very pleased to, to see it happening. Um, I was like, not scared when we get when they had the big dip there, but I mean, I was just, um, the momentum in the start of the year felt like we were building towards things just like becoming way more accepted within the sort of. I don't know. I don't want to say real world of finance, the traditional <laughs> world of finance, shall we say. And then sure. everything sort of fell off. Um, everyone blamed Elon Musk. Uh, <laughs> actually, what do you think was the, the cause of the of the dip then that we, we had? So we saw, we saw it hit uh, 64K in March or April. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it fell back. What did you think was the, the cause for that? So in my opinion, it's, it's a lot of things and it's a lot of things that I think other people will find very unpopular. Um, people talk about market cycles and the inevitability of Bitcoin. Um, I, I don't think it's the case when, when I look at the volume and the, and the actual price discovery that's occurring in Bitcoin, um, and in BTC and everything else, you know, the blockchain space, the, the price discovery that is occurring is almost entirely against tether, like to the tune of about 98%, uh, is tether trading. Um, we've seen Tether again got slapped on the risk or wrist about a week ago because uh, they were running a fractional reserve. We know they are running a fractional reserve, uh, and they've been they've been busted for it. It's not shut them down. They have not collapsed in in the sort of house of cards collapse that I think is is at least plausible to happen in the near future. Um, but we saw Tether's liquidity dry up. We we saw Tether printing slow down now we can say well that's because people were exchanging less dollars for tethers because market cycle and that could be but um i i, I don't i don't think tether is as real as as many others do think that it is and we saw tether printing dry up and we saw the bearish action go right along with the lack of tether liquidity uh, that was occurring during uh the late spring and into most of summer and now in the fall um, we're, we're seeing it pick back up. Tether prints, price goes up. And so that, that's that's one one theory. I, you know, the other theory is well, it's it's inevitable. Everybody's buying. You know, Michael Saylor will keep buying, and it's scarce, and and you know, everyone's going to be rich because scarcity. Mm. And I don't know. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like things like that are going to have sort of boom and bust cycles because it's yeah, fairly new and innovative, and people will get uh, get FOMO and and jump in but also sure. like, jump out as soon as you know they think that things are gonna end just because yeah yep. humans well looking looking at volume so I as a I was a fundamental analyst for a, a hedge fund uh, a private hedge fund and a, and a trading education group and one of the things that we used to look at a lot was like uh volumetric cycle as it pertains to like google searches and and other things like when is the retail fomo going to heat up and we have not seen retail fomo in 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 the markets in this whole cycle uh if you look at volume volume on retail uh you know places like coinbase where you can connect your bank account and buy you know 100 bucks worth of bitcoin um we haven't seen that this cycle we also haven't seen the google uh, the Google metrics of people searching and wanting to learn about Bitcoin. So this has been almost entirely very large players uh, seeking to get in and front run retail. And then I would argue that a, a very significant portion of it is also just plainly uh, the market makers playing with Tether. And I, I think that the volume charts show that very clearly. You just have to know how to look at it. Mm. So 
could you give like a broad explanation for me and for people listening as well? Like, because I've had, I've had several people sort of explain Tether to me and I don't 100% understand exactly what it is. Um, because when someone explained to me, I was like, this sounds like a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> So there's two people on Earth, I think, that can actually tell you what's going on at Tether, and that would be Stuart Hogner and uh, Giancarlo Devasini, I believe is his name. They're, um, what they allege, the official line at Tether is, is you give us a million dollars and we hand you a million Tethers. You take that million Tethers, you trade it in the markets, and then when you want to get your money back, you give us those Tethers, we give you your dollars back, period. That's the official story. Uh, the real story we know is some combination of, yeah, you give us dollars and we'll invest it in, maybe we're giving loans to mining operations who still want to hold on to their, their Bitcoins rather than sell their Bitcoins to pay their electric bill. Uh, we know that there's something to the tune of 95% of, of all of their collateral is not cash. And, and this is a problem because uh, if, if you've studied the history of money and the history of banking, bank runs occur when too many people want their damn cash back. And uh, Tether is sitting in what they claim are low risk sort of bonds, commercial paper, uh, which is debt. It is, it is unsecured commercial paper, meaning debt to companies that may or may not be able to pay that debt back in a pinch uh, and other things. Now, that can be okay to a certain degree. Um, you know, a really conservative bank might hold 20% commercial paper, but what it looks like is Tether is holding uh, to the tune of up in the 90s of non-cash assets. Uh, we've seen in some of their reporting and legal stuff that some of what they are holding is Bitcoin and Ethereum and other things itself. So it's, it's a, a derivative of cash collateralized by Bitcoin used to pump the price of Bitcoin in like this terrible, vicious cycle. So this reminds me very much of uh, bundling up bad home loans and and trying to sell them as AAA home loans because well they're only twenty percent bad home loans and they're probably not going to crash and uh, it's 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 a big big house of cards in my opinion uh, maybe it crashes maybe it doesn't um, but if 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 you're one of these people who believe that Bitcoin is fundamentally good because fiat is fundamentally broken uh, I would be I mean Tether is way way worse than than fiat. I mean, it's it being one-to-one -to, -one to fiat is bad enough, but it is a lot worse than fiat because it's not even fiat. It's a bunch of debt that maybe you'll be able to redeem for fiat if if necessary. But it's a, it's a big problem. It's a very deep rabbit hole. And um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Well, I, I, yeah, we're mainly here to talk about Bitcoin so, and, and, the, and Bitcoin Cash. So um, why don't you give us like a... Um, say a brief history of the the fork and and what what the the two different sides were were arguing for or trying to get so when it comes to two different sides first of all i want to i want to say that i'm i'm very much a bsv advocate and bsv is is actually a split from the bitcoin cash civil war so i would argue that bsv is both the real bitcoin and the real bitcoin cash but that's a again a nuanced conversation here uh, going back to at least as far back as 2013, there was a discussion on the best way to scale Bitcoin uh, that falls into two very distinct sides. The, the first side, uh, BTC says that we should never change the block size limit and we should only tinker in the software uh, 
and make blocks more efficient. And then we should make very fundamental protocol changes to allow transactions to occur in other channels, uh, Lightning Network being one of them, uh, but Liquid being another. And there's been propositions of, of other things like let's build a separate network that allows Bitcoins to transact. I, I think another one right now is very clearly Ethereum. There's more BTC on Ethereum than there is on Lightning Network because that's just what people want to do with it. And think about that. It's a weird one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> could you could you explain so, how how the fuck that that works? So briefly? it's 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 not even on Ethereum. It is tokenized. So let's say you want to play with one BTC in an Ethereum DeFi contract, and me and you are going to act as custodians. We put that one BTC into a smart contract where we both have the keys. We both have to sign to move it, and then we issue an Ethereum token that is worth one BTC. And we promise to redeem it in the future. It's like what they're doing at Tether. It's mm -hmm. here's your dollar here. Here's a one-to-one -one Tether that represents a dollar. So, so that's what's going on with BTC. And because you cannot do uh, smart contracts and all this different stuff on BTC, it makes sense to lock that BTC up and transact it on whatever network that you want to do something with it on. Um, that's funny because uh, smart contracts were first deployed in Bitcoin, uh, the original Bitcoin protocol allowed for tokenization, NFTs, you could build all kinds of stuff up in the stack. This was all shut off uh, really, really early, actually. This is between uh, 2010 and 2013. They shut a bunch of this stuff off. They added a bunch of different things. They started to tinker with the protocol the second Satoshi was no longer in the picture. And this pissed off the people that knew Satoshi. Like there were developers who had personal relationships with him. And so this is what guys like uh, Mike Hearn and Gavin Andreessen and Jeff Garzik and, and some of these other early guys. And when the sophomore class of developers showed up, these are like Peter Todd, Greg Maxwell, uh, Peter Willey, um, various others. Um, they were like, well, no, Satoshi didn't know everything. He wasn't right about everything. We need, we're the software experts. We're going to fix Bitcoin. Well, they were the Bitcoin originalist types that said, no, Satoshi was very clear that the protocol is set in stone at version 0.1. Like he was, he was not ambiguous about uh, Bitcoin being able to scale on chain. You just allow miners to accept larger blocks should they decide to, and then we go forward from there. Well, this turned into an extremely toxic uh, civil war. Every proposition of, hey, here's, let's do a client that can mine two megabyte blocks. They were DDoSed, they were harassed, they had their keys revoked, they were kicked out of the conversations in the Linux Foundation, they had their keys revoked from GitHub. It was like, if you suggest larger blocks, you are gone. You're not a Bitcoiner, get out. And lots of people left literally under threat in, in many circumstances. Like, hey, my family is at risk at this point and I'm not even getting paid. I'm a volunteer. I was friends with Satoshi. But if it means somebody, you know, DDoSing me off the network and me losing my real job and, you know, maybe my family being physically harmed, peace out. Good luck. You guys suck. And so there was there was a lot of that for a while too. And then it, it culminated ultimately into the honest nodes of the network, the, the mining nodes saying, okay, we're going to split the ledger and we are going to try a two chain solution. This is BTC and BCH, Bitcoin Cash. Um, things did not go the way that they were expected. And the reason is, is ultimately they didn't really try the Bitcoin protocol properly reinstated in Bitcoin Cash either. And Bitcoin Cash had a bunch of people that were also small blockers. And so uh, myself, uh, I was 
vaguely supportive of Bitcoin Cash. I did. I didn't love the idea. I would have fought forever for the BTC ticker and, and all of that. I I think the fight was worth it. But then ultimately, um, you know, I was a small voice among big ones mm. and uh, Bitcoin Cash was split. And I said, OK, well, that's the version I support. Like it is the 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 roadmap toward restoring Satoshi's vision of Bitcoin, which frankly, we have not tried between 20, 2010 and 2017. We didn't try Bitcoin as Satoshi envisioned it. And if we believe Satoshi had any value at all, isn't it worth trying his idea? <laughs> and uh then by 2018, about a year later, we were all fighting again in the Bitcoin Cash community because a certain number of them said, eh, we don't really need to raise the block size limit. And uh, th those of us who became the BSV community, we, we were saying, all right, well, the original Bitcoin didn't have a block size limit. It didn't have all these script limitations. It didn't have all these things. We want to restore the protocol and let every single conversation not be about what software developers want, but we want everything to be based on policy settings of the node operators. So a node operator can attempt to mine a four gigabyte block or a 10 terabyte block or, or allow for all kinds of data, whatever they want. But, but we fundamentally believed that the market of the, the nodes of the network should decide everything based on competitive consensus. BTC doesn't allow you to do that. BTC demands that you run very, very tightly managed, like consensus level settings in a node that is in in um, run in consensus with Bitcoin Core, the, the the reference client, and and that reference client does not allow you to to move any direction. It is a very tight and narrow lane that they they force you to go down. So. Uh, that's the very short version of uh, why there is a BTC, a BCH, and a BSV uh, on the SHA-256 algorithm. Uh, I think people should be aware that the miners, the mining pools that you hear of, the big names, the, your Ant pool, your F2 pool, via BTC, um, Mining Dutch, BTC Top, uh, all of these pools, they mine all three chains. So the, the, the deciding nodes have said, we want them to compete. We're going to allow a multi-chain consensus experiment that don't innately orphan one another. So I would argue that all three are Bitcoin out of consensus. We have not had the war that orphans everything that isn't truly Bitcoin yet. And when that happens, it's going to be some fireworks. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, so there's a there's a few things I want to I want to try and like get a few more details on here and get get a better understanding of. Uh, first off, I want to give a shout out to this amazing comment that someone said. Um, Don Friedrichsen, he said maybe a spicy comment, but BSV is like the anti jab movement, not recognized, actually demonized by the majority, but we look at data and results, not fakeable charts. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, which, uh, yeah, hilarious man. Uh, thanks for the comment. Um, so. Uh, essentially, what you're saying is that the the initial civil war was about, uh, in a nutshell, it was about the block size. Then the Bitcoin Cash people split off, and then there were some people who thought that there should be um, like a limit on the on the block size. Is that so? BSV is the only implementation of the Bitcoin protocol that does not have a software level block size limit. So okay. Bitcoin Cash will only let you do 32 megabytes every 10 minutes is, is the total amount of transactions or whatever. And on BTC, it's somewhere between one and four, depending on how much 
uh, SegWit usage there is, but it's typically right around one megabyte per block. So th those are very, those are hard coded limits. And if you try to push that limit, you will immediately be hard forked off the network. Like you are not allowed to compete beyond what the software developers uh, determine. Uh, but in BSV, um, you, you can you can try to do whatever you want. Miners can say, eh, like you need to pay a higher fee or or you need to wait or whatever. But if, if you want to send a, a 50 terabyte transaction that's just this gigantic smart contract, you can do it. It won't fork. It might sit in somebody's mempool for an hour or a day or a week. But when some miner decides to mine it, like, okay, we'll push it. And you can push an entire operating system into the stack on BSV, for example. But um, it's just, it's, it's a much more free market competitive system, like in its own closed loop. It allows you to basically try to do anything. Okay. So the the question that because I, I kind of get it this is what this is what i was saying before like i've spoken to quite a few people in this space and like i'm mm. really trying to get like a good grasp of of all the fundamentals of it so why is the block size so crucial like what is what is so fundamental about that that people fought so viciously by the signs of things about it sure so, I mean, that's a, that's a that's a big question. Unfortunately, it sounds like it should be simple, but um, it, it's it's a lot of things. For for one, it's governance. So, the way that Bitcoin is governed uh, is is according to Section Five of the Bitcoin White Paper. It explains that a node validates a block by building another block and and securing it with proof of work, and you're that, that that's how every change should be made any kind of policy should be about like you know what i'm an honest node i have a lot of proof of work i'm willing to to validate this block by building on it that's that's the entire governance model in bitcoin the btc people have said no there's also a social consensus aspect to things like you don't necessarily have to be a block building node in order to have an opinion about network consensus. So they created like the, the Bitcoin improvement proposal system they call BIPs today. So uh, like Taproot has a certain BIP number and is going to be implemented because of a, a specific flag day vote. So it's, it's democratic in that way, right? So you have this sort of social group of, do I want Taproot? Do I not want Taproot? And it's, it's like a yes or no. And everybody signals with their nodes, even though those nodes are not providing proof of work, and then they agree to accept taproot transactions after a certain date, uh, a flag date. So they're basically, they're having what's essentially an election in Bitcoin, but they're changing the governance model. Like there is nowhere in the, the white paper or the protocol spec of, you know, if you read the way that it's governed uh, from a software standpoint originally. So all this stuff is like, it might be a good thing. Maybe taproot is a good idea but it undermines the governance and the rules of the network. And if Bitcoin is not governed by the rules by which it's established, you have to ask, well, who has the authority to change the governance model of Bitcoin? And the response from people is, well, everyone, if we all collectively agree to change Bitcoin, it's like, okay, that's fine. But a democratic money is not a hard money. It is not sound money. If, if you can vote to change the fundamentals of the money, is that not fiat currency? Is, is this not the problem that we have now is that there is a group of people that can change the rules of the money, right? Mm. And so so that's that's sort of the philosophical underpinnings of it. Um, and so for big blockers, we looked at it and said, Satoshi gave us a fixed protocol secured by proof of work. And if we want to be able to scale Bitcoin, 
there there has to be more transactions per block. And if you have a hard-coded one megabyte limit, you can only do about seven transactions per second at the very best. So that's BTC's max limit is you can't get more than seven, seven per second or about six megabytes per hour can go across that network. That's the hard limit. And that isn't nearly enough for seven billion people to use Bitcoin, right? So it demands that you have to use other systems, other network resources, you know, either like a visa secured by Coinbase and, you know, all this custodial crap. And that, that really undermines what Bitcoin was supposed to do. But with a bigger block size, maybe maybe there's only 100 users right now. And so you only need a kilobyte sized block. But then on Black Friday, there's going to be a lot more people using it, assuming we're using it as a global cash. Right. Mm. And so maybe on Black Friday, you need to have successive terabyte blocks go by in order to, to maintain the governance and, and the rules of the system. So Lightning Network or, or any other off-chain solution is essentially, it's a different, it's a separate network entity with separate network rules. And people would argue, well, if you're only transacting in pennies or whatever, it doesn't matter. But I would argue every Satoshi matters. Every Satoshi matters very much. And saying that some Satoshis should be allowed to be used in a different rule set tells me that you don't understand just how important the rules of a sound and hard money are. And so in order for, for Bitcoin to let every Satoshi be governed the way that a Bitcoin is supposed to be governed, for us to trust it to be sound money and hard money, we have to be able to submit every single transaction that occurs to the proof of work of honest nodes. Otherwise, we're not talking about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is very specific, it's very particular. And, you know, and, and this is why we have civil wars, right? It's, it's exactly the same thing. Like, uh, you know, like think Israel and Palestine, like both, both sides really care about doing the right thing with their property rights and, and their religious heritage and, and all these things. And there are good people on both sides of that that say, hey, my family's from here 10,000 years ago. And there's somebody on the other side that says, yeah, and my family's from here 10,000 years ago too. <laughs> and, but we disagree and we disagree on these very fundamental things. And, it comes down to can we establish truth, real truth? And with with certain things like that, it's it's a philosophical discussion. But I would argue that Satoshi's writings, which are publicly available, uh, the Bitcoin white paper is publicly available. And if you break it down and say that Bitcoin is is a is a rule, it is a set of rules that give us a hard money that that it it matters to make sure every Satoshi is governed by that rule set or else it's all up for grabs. If, if anything's up for grabs, it's all up for grabs. And, and that's, that's really my position on it. And it is the big block Bitcoin position on it is that Bitcoin is fundamentally good and it, it should fundamentally be kept all in one rule set. And, and that's, that's the, that's, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So there's um, the, the one thing I love. I love your every Satoshi matters. That's amazing. <laughs> you should get that on a t-shirt, man. Um, Thank you. <laughs> but the one thing I would say is that it seems like just from, from what I understand about this is that um, Brad Mills, the way Brad Mills explained the, the lightning network to me, and it seemed like that this was a great way of maintaining the underlying like protocols of bitcoin whilst playing around with stuff like to me that seemed like the the best solution rather than 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 forking but 
obviously you know better than I do. <laughs> um, do we need like a, or in like a hundred years, are we going to have like the the Bitcoin Supreme Court to in, uh, interpret the <laughs> to interpret the 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 original white paper like the the Supreme Court like pours over the Constitution now. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, I mean, we've been, we've been doing it anyways. So like you know, Brad, um, Brad's got me blocked on Twitter. So I, you know, I, I I like to think that he and I could have had respectful conversations. I always felt that we did, but he blocked me at some point. Um, Here's the thing is that Lightning Network does not allow you to maintain the original protocol of, of Bitcoin. It requires it. In fact, it demands a change in the way that signatures are, are handled in Bitcoin and Bitcoin. Satoshi described Bitcoin as a chain of digital signatures. And in order for Lightning Network to work, you needed to get rid of transaction malleability. And that required that the chain of signatures was replaced with a hash of witness data of signatures. And so this is this is a very deep and fundamental change to the definition of a Bitcoin. And they would argue, well, it's but it was done by a soft fork. It didn't split consensus. But I would argue that a soft fork is malware. Here, here's how a soft fork works. I make a protocol change. I change some rule about Bitcoin. I break a rule, but I break it in such a way that I wrap it in an envelope, all these new transaction rules. So these are SegWit transactions. And on the outside of the envelope, I say, read this hash. Don't, don't read what's in the envelope. Just trust that the sender of the envelope is good and that the postage is paid. And so they are forward compatible to legacy Bitcoin nodes, but a, a node from 2016 can't read a SegWit transaction. It doesn't know it's there. It is reading the envelope that is saying, don't worry, this envelope is full of valid Bitcoin transactions. Let them go through. <laughs> And so this is a very deep undermining of consensus. This is an undermining of proof of work, but it was a necessary change in order to, to hash signatures because a hash can't be changed. A Bitcoin signature is, is what's called malleable uh, for a certain amount of time while you open up a channel uh, in the Bitcoin stack. But, but when you hash it, then it's, it's solid. It, it cannot be changed. And this is crucial because Lightning Network is a separate network. So you're hashing your Bitcoins transacting them on lightning and then you can do whatever you want with them on lightning and then when you close the channel it redeems them back onto the chain but but that whole process everything that's occurring there is a very very deep fundamental change to the bitcoin protocol and people argue that it's not but i argue that it is and and it's very much a, an opinion thing Hmm. Someone, I wish I could get to all of the comments because there's some great ones coming in uh, someone said that we need a pok proof of kurt uh, <laughs> and um someone also said that we should have a debate with you and kurt um about whether the bitcoin white paper is a scriptural text and whether it can evolve um that would be hmm. wow um yeah i'm not sure that's if, a heavy one yeah I, I mean that would be fantastic i would have to get someone else to sit in with me as like someone who's more knowledgeable because i would just yep. sit there being like you both sound right um, <laughs> <laughs> um but the one of the things I was curious about is uh, you 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 sort of tossed it off very casually earlier. Most people don't really claim to know who Satoshi Nakamoto is. I've seen mm. everything claimed from um, Elon Musk to it was the CIA creating Bitcoin yep. in order to create the the protocol or the create the the market for a digital currency that then they could make like Fed coin. Um, so <laughs> I have seen 
sure. everything suggested about who he is. So you said you know him. Do you <laughs> believe that he is Satoshi Nakamoto? So and who I, I, I have a, a personal relationship with Dr. Craig Wright. Um, we are sort of colleagues. Um, he is the chief scientist at a company called Enchain. Enchain is the company that created the original BSV node client, and they maintain the node client uh, at the at the will of the Bitcoin Association of Zug, Switzerland. So um, Craig was doxxed in 2015 as Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, Wired and Gizmodo magazines published stories on the same day, and it was the same day that the Australian tax authority was raiding his home, and somebody, some person who we do not know, also brought in local Australian media to stand in front of his house and film it being raided by the Australian tax authority. We do not know to this day who the leaker is who gave the information to the ATO, the local Australian media, Wired Magazine, and Gizmodo Magazine, and had them orchestrate this giant thing all in one day. Now, the curious thing is that Craig Wright did not live in that house any longer. He had moved to London a number of months earlier because he says that he he knew that something was happening at some point and he needed to get his family to safety. Uh, so he, as Satoshi Nakamoto, knew that he had been hacked and, and had a, a mitigation plan in place that he executed at that point. Um, when he was asked about it, he denied it, handled it. No, I'm not Satoshi Nakamoto for, for quite some time. Um, Ultimately, the, the attacks started immediately. Um, he gathered some people together, uh, significant people in the space at the time. It was the president of the Bitcoin Foundation. Um, uh, it was the lead developer of Bitcoin Core. Uh, and he invited a number of other people uh, to see signings. He was like, hey, look, I want to prove to you very quietly that I'm Satoshi Nakamoto uh, because I'm, I'm in hiding. I'm in danger, frankly. Um, let's, let's get some of the stuff out of the way. I really need some allies here. Uh, because I was trying to be private. Somebody doxed me and has this whole thing, and I'm, I'm afraid for my life. So he showed Gavin Andreessen, who, who was that, uh, that head of, of Bitcoin Core at the time, and John Matonis, who was the founder of Hushmail and, and a bunch of other stuff, but he was the president of the Bitcoin Foundation. And he, he showed them definitively, hey, I'm, I'm Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, when Gavin Andreessen came out the next day and said, hey, I met Satoshi Nakamoto, he showed it to me, on, on this laptop, he did a key signing and did all this stuff. Bam, keys revoked. Bitcoin Core said, you're out of Bitcoin Core. We assume you've been compromised and therefore you're not allowed to commit to the Bitcoin Core repo any longer. Well, that's curious, isn't it? Like Gavin, who had been de developing, he was one of the very first Bitcoin developers he developed with Satoshi. He had a personal private relationship with Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi Nakamoto left Gavin Andreessen the keys to the project and said, Gavin is in charge of Bitcoin. And the moment Gavin said, I believe Craig Wright is Satoshi Nakamoto. He was kicked out, period. And so uh, heads rolled. Uh, everybody that saw Craig Wright um, and said Craig Wright Satoshi Nakamoto was basically kicked out of the, the Bitcoin community immediately. So Craig took a, a very big step back and said, okay, it, you know, knowing me or knowing my truth or whatever is now a liability to people's livelihood, careers, safety, who knows what else. Um, Stuff got very, very, very contentious very quick. Um, 
But yeah, I, I believe firmly that Craig Wright was the creator of the Satoshi Nakamoto moniker, that he was the author of the white paper and was generally the architect of, of the Bitcoin system protocol rules, et cetera. Uh, Craig has been very clear that he had people that helped him with software dev and, and other stuff, that he hired people and, and that, that he had help, but that Bitcoin was his idea. It's like the the you know the architect of a building and you know there's also stone cutters there's glass guys there's wood guys you know and they'd be like, hey i built this cathedral too and it's like yeah <laughs> kind of but the architect it's his building right so that's 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 how i understand craig wright uh to be satoshi nakamoto so that it seems like if if there's been quite a few people who were very close to him and they believe that that when he said he's satoshi nakamoto and that he's proven it to them and these people are all very big in that space and have been there since seemingly almost the very beginning or at least mm -hmm. very early on in in the story of bitcoin and yet the it's it's so disputed it seems weird to me because like i this like i i only even realized and you know people probably laugh at me for this i only realized that there was even someone who was like quite legitimately claiming to be satoshi nakamoto from your mm. twitter feed about two months ago <laughs> <laughs> because like all sure. the stuff that i'd seen about it was essentially just um who is Satoshi Nakamoto articles in the mainstream press. And obviously they're sure. not the people to get cryptocurrency news from, but you know, right. I thought they would have at least done some due diligence on, you know, this pretty big story. Um, <laughs> for sure. Craig, Craig Wright is the name that no one's allowed to say. People, people are going to reach out to you and tell you 100% that I'm a lying scammer, that Craig is a lying scammer and the whole thing, like this is going to happen. <laughs> and if you do not agree with, you do not bow and kiss the ring of, of BTC and, and, the small black narrative, they're going to kick you out of the club. I, I guarantee you this. I'm not in the club, uh, don't worry. And <laughs> but this but this is what happened to Craig too. Like people were a little okay with Craig. You know, I mean people were obviously curious, but like, okay, maybe he's Satoshi. Let's check this out. But as soon as he came out and said, like BTC, the small block notion, lightning network, all this stuff is bullshit. Uh, Bitcoin was always intended to be no block size limit, no protocol limits, no any of this. It's supposed to be the the data ledger for, for global commerce, period. All commerce should be on Bitcoin. It was like, oh no, that, that flies in the face of, of, of everything that we have built our reputations on. And ultimately, um, I, I, I break it down to, um, there's a lot of venture capital money that was given to uh, a lot of development groups between 2014 and 2015. Uh, Blockstream was given about $40 million uh, by MasterCard Ventures in 2014 to establish a professional Bitcoin development group. And I would argue that MasterCard has a major conflict of interest in being one of the primary funders of Bitcoin development, right? Mm. So it, Craig, Craig flies in the face of their portfolio, period. I, I think that is the biggest aspect of it is that, hey, BTC is not supposed to look like this. This is not what, what I created as Satoshi Nakamoto. And so what he tells them is that ultimately the, the protocol, when you make a protocol change at all, so there's a soft fork, hard fork, whatever, if you change the protocol, the MIT license is very clear that you need to express that change with a name change. So BTC making a fundamental protocol change means that it's not Bitcoin, even if it synchronizes, if it's the longest chain and, and the most proof of work and all of that, because the governance is what matters. And so it's, it's a ticker war. It's like a social war about understanding 
what is the real Bitcoin? And that is a conversation that is too philosophical for most people. <laughs> and, and there's a ton of money tangled up in it. Mm. Like here's, here's the thing. BSV has heavily underperformed the markets and therefore people will say, well, yeah, because it, like that indicates that it is a scam. And I would argue, well, no, the, the powers that be, the, the, the wealth structures of the world. So if you look at like Silicon Valley venture capital, if you look at the central banks of the world, you look at the, the, the World Bank, uh, do you know who's, who's one of the biggest advisors to companies like Lightning Labs and Blockstream and Coinbase and, and Kraken and BitGo and Grayscale and Coindesk, the media company, uh, Abra Wallet, uh, Fireblocks, who else? We got a bunch more. We got Genesis Trading and probably 50 more brands. The, the lead advisor is a guy named Larry Summers. Larry Summers is a former World Bank president. So if we're talking about disrupting global finance, we have handed the advisorship of all of these key brands and infrastructure partners and developers, and all these different things in the space and we've given it to the, the, the former World Bank president. This was a, a guy, he was a, a policy advisor to the Clintons on, uh, in, in the Clinton White House. He's a former Harvard, I believe he was the president of Harvard University and things. But then look at the other people in, in that organization. The other people in that organization include uh, people from Bain Capital, which was Mitt Romney's venture oh, capital I'm firm. very familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> There's Barry Silbert, who was a, uh, a, a big, serious Wall Street guy. And, and these guys are paying the salaries of all of the people who are influencing the direction of BTC. So, I mean, just the fact that they own Coindesk. Coindesk is looked at as the definitive authority in reporting on the entire blockchain economy, but they are owned by a portfolio company of MasterCard Ventures. And so you are getting fed information about what is the best blockchain? Why does it have value? How do we determine what is good? And you think that you're not being propagandized, but but every bit of information is coming from people who are paid by MasterCard to tell you what Bitcoin is. And it's a massive conflict of interest and nobody's going to tell you except this guy. And this is why people uh, li like to say they like to say I'm a conspiracy theorist and all this stuff. But <laughs> go ahead and look. You can look it up. MasterCard Ventures created Digital Currency Group and Digital Currency Group has the portfolio of essentially every brand that matters in the entire blockchain economy. And so this decentralization thing is decentralization theater, and we're all being paid off to go along with it by becoming fiat rich. You know, if, if, if I just made 10x gains in the last year, I'm going to be like, you know what? Maybe it's good anyways. I'm like, let's move on. I'm appreciating these gains here, right? Wow, I mean, the, the comment section is really loving this. Actually, they're agreeing with you. Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of fighting, but they seem to have like focused around the consensus that DCG are evil, basically. Um, yeah. And whenever I see anyone labeled with the with conspiracy theorists these days, I'm like, what have they got to say that's important? That that's just my immediate reaction. Right. I've seen too many people saying important things called conspiracy theorists to dismiss yep. anyone now. Like, the, yeah, yeah I, it's it's because I don't know. I get the feel the feeling that the the mainstream press and and I don't know the establishment as such, the globalists, whatever you want to call them, 
sure the rich people who who are in the <laughs> positions of power basically um, yeah i love that people pretend that they don't exist because it's like are you stupid of course they exist right like, yes you, rich you know, people have each other's phone numbers and they do whatever they can to stay rich <laughs> yeah. like, that's, that's not a crazy suggestion <laughs> right um, yeah so the the unfortunately um, we're running out of time here because I I really have to run unfortunately soon. But um, mm-hmm. the last thing that I wanted to ask about since I put it in the title of the thing was was El Salvador. Like, how do you think this um, experiment has run so far, um, and what do you see happening going forward? Uh, I think it's a shit show. I, I think the people. Uh, the, President Bukele is increasingly unpopular. Um, I would argue that he's a fascist dictator. Uh, he's He brought the military into parliament uh, to kick out the Supreme Court and do all kinds of things. He has done a number of unconstitutional things in El Salvador. He is by all means a dangerous actor on the world scene. And the only thing that, that matters is that he is not wealthy enough to cause a whole lot of threats to a whole bunch of other things. But I believe that he looks at the coming aristocracy that, that the BTC people are hoping to establish. And he's a young guy. He's, he's not unintelligent. He's actually very sharp. He's very uh, enthusiastic. He's a, he's, a, he's a good leader from a um, rhetorical standpoint. He understands politics. And he's trying to get himself in early with, with what he sees as a new technocratic aristocracy. He wants to be a world player. So he is looking and saying, okay, what are the first world progressive tech-minded people doing and how can I join that early? I think that's 100% what's going on in, in El Salvador because we're talking about a country that is living, you know, most people are living on less than a dollar a week. Um, they don't have the, they don't, they don't even have internet in most of that country. So converting to a, a Bitcoin, a Bitcoin economy doesn't even make sense in a very practical um, standpoint from their base tech, not to mention the tech limitations of BTC itself. Um, but they have their, uh, their, their wallet situation with lightning network and there's like a federally managed lightning network wallet and all these things and you know people are acting like hey this is this is good for bitcoin this is good for freedom and it's like no absolutely not there is a government mandated government controlled lightning network wallet being issued by a fascist dictator on a group of people who do not want it (laughs) and uh this is no good for the cause of freedom and frankly i think it's uh in in many regards immoral and it makes me pretty sick to see the people that are flying El Salvador flags and their little volcano emojis in their Twitter profiles, because I I think it's going to look much like, you know, supporting Mussolini and Franco and Hitler in, in the early 1930s. (laughs) Like it's just, the dude is a bad actor. And if he gets his way, bad things are going to happen to the Salvadoran people. Wow. Okay. That's quite an indictment. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it was just, uh, to me, it just seemed like they were rushing to be first um, because this was going to happen at some point, like some, someone was going to, or some country was going to try it. I half expected it to be some sort of African dictator. Um, although Akon's doing his own thing in Uganda, uh, yep. <laughs> but do you, do you think this was just like a rush to be first or do you think like in, in the hopes that maybe like investment and, would pour in or something? Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's what I mean. I mean, there, there are benefits to it if you're in the right positions of power in El Salvador and like, uh, Nayib Bukele is, is not unintelligent and, and it's a, it's a hedge against, you know, the problems with their actual money, like the, the, the money there is mismanaged. And, you know, in, in many ways, Bitcoin would be a better treasury asset. But the way that he's going about it, um, I mean, he, he's hooking up with who I think are generally bad people in the BTC space also. So it's, 
you know, I, I look at this as, you know, a guy trying to establish him into himself into a cabal with people that hopefully benefits his government. Like, I, I, I think that there are some pragmatic positives, you know, that can also be done, but I don't think it's coming from a place of, you know, goodwill for the, the Salvadoran people. He has shown plain and simple, he doesn't care about the law in El Salvador. He will march the military into the parliament to do whatever the hell he wants. And so uh, I, I don't think that there's anything, uh, you know, coming from his heart for his people in this. I, I think it's, it's an opportunity to be richer and more powerful and, and join the world scene. Okay, well, Kurt, that seems like an absolutely fantastic place uh, on which to leave things. I wish we could talk longer, and I would definitely love to have you back on the show uh, at some point. I'm, I'm sure we can find a reason. I'd, I'd be I'd be happy to. I'm looking forward to uh, having a private conversation after people start to call you a scammer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. It's fine. I get called all sorts of things. Um, I got a thick skin. Like people will never say um, as bad things as my friends will say to me. Like this. This is the best thing about coming from Ireland is like people have the most brutal sense of humor ever. Like I'm oh I'm sure YouTube will like flag me for swearing so much, but like yeah. we greet each other being like sup cunt like this. <laughs> like, people, ne- <laughs> people never be like be more brutal than that. So yeah. Um, do you want to briefly tell people where to find your stuff? Absolutely. Sorry, I got a screaming kid in the background. Right. You can find me at coingeek.com. Uh, find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Kurt Wookert Jr. Uh, but you can find me anywhere. I also answer all my DMs. So if anybody wants to chat, you want to talk about some of the stuff I've been talking about, I'm very happy to. I hop on private calls with people all the time if you want to clarify. Uh, but but truly, CoinGeek.com, I do the CoinGeek Weekly live stream every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And I have a live troll box that I take Q&A from every single week. So if you want to ask me, hey, Kurt, why are you so stupid? Ask me that question. I will explain to you exactly what's wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thanks very much, man. And, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, yeah, see you again next week. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget today's sponsor, How to See a Man About a Dog. For the reader looking for a wholly original and experimental mixed-media approach to stories, How to See a Man About a Dog is a much-needed fever dream tour de force. It combines dark comic short stories, powerful poems, and pulp fiction prose to create a heartbreaking and hilarious journey that readers will not soon forget. Read How to See a Man About a Dog collected writings for free with Kindle Unlimited or get it at major retailers everywhere.